Chapter Four of Book Five of Les Misérables, Volume Three by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by May Low. Les Misérables, Volume Three by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Five. The Excellence of Misfortune. Chapter Four. Monsieur Mabeau. On the day when Monsieur Mabeau said to Marius, "Certainly, I approve of political opinions," he expressed the real state of his mind. All political opinions were matters of indifference to him, and he approved them all, without distinction, provided they left him in peace, as the Greeks called the Furies, the beautiful, the good, the charming. The Eumenides. Monsieur Mabeau's political opinion consisted in a passionate love for plants and, above all, for books. Like all the rest of the world, he possessed the termination in "ist," without which no one could exist at that time. But he was neither a royalist, a Bonapartist, a Chartist, an Orleanist, nor an anarchist. He was a bookwinist, a collector of old books. He did not understand how men could busy themselves with hating each other because of silly stuff like the Charter, democracy, legitimacy, monarchy, the Republic, etc., when there were in the world all sorts of mosses, grasses, and shrubs which they might be looking at, and heaps of folios, and even of thirty-two mows which they might turn over. He took good care not to become useless. Having books did not prevent his reading. Being a botanist did not prevent his being a gardener. When he made Pontmercy's acquaintance, this sympathy had existed between the colonel and himself, that what the colonel did for flowers, he did for fruits. Monsieur Mabeau had succeeded in producing seedling pears, as savoury as the pears of Saint Germain. It is from one of his combinations, apparently, that the October Mirabelle. Now celebrated and no less perfumed than the summer Mirabelle owes its origin. He went to mass rather from gentleness than from piety, and because, as he loved the faces of men but hated their noise, he found them assembled and silent only in church. Feeling that he must be something in the state, he had chosen the career of warden. However, he had never succeeded in loving any woman as much as a tulip bulb. Nor any man as much as an Elzevir. He had long passed sixty when one day some one asked him, "Have you never been married?" "I have forgotten," said he. When it sometimes happened to him, and to whom does it not happen to say, "Oh, if I were only rich," it was not when ogling a pretty girl, as was the case with Father Gillenormand, but when contemplating an old book. He lived alone with an old housekeeper. He was somewhat gouty, and when he was asleep, his aged fingers, stiffened with rheumatism, lay crooked up in the folds of his sheets. He had composed and published a flora of the environs of Cauteretz with coloured plates, a work which enjoyed a tolerable measure of esteem and which sold well. People rang his bell in the Rue Mesières two or three times a day to ask for it. He drew as much as two thousand francs a year from it. This constituted nearly the whole of his fortune. Although poor, 
he had had the talent to form for himself, by dint of patience, privations, and time, a precious collection of rare copies of every sort. He never went out without a book under his arm, and he often returned with two. The sole decoration of the four rooms on the ground floor which composed his lodgings consisted of framed herbariums and engravings of the old masters. The sight of a sword or a gun chilled his blood. He had never approached a cannon in his life, even at the invalid. He had a passable stomach, a brother who was a cure, perfectly white hair, no teeth, either in his mouth or his mind, a trembling in every limb, a Picard accent, an infantile laugh, the air of an old sheep, and he was easily frightened. Add to this that he had no other friendship, no other acquaintance among the living, than an old bookseller of the Porte Saint-Jacques, named Royal. His dream was to naturalise indigo in France. His servant was also a sort of innocent. The poor good old woman was a spinster. Sultan, her cat, which might have mewed Allegri's miserere in the Sixteen Chapel, had filled her heart and sufficed for the quantity of passion which existed in her. None of her dreams had ever proceeded as far as a man. She had never been able to get further than her cat. Like him, she had a moustache. Her glory consisted in her caps, which were always white. She passed her time, on Sundays, after Mass, in counting over the linen in her chest, and in spreading out on her bed the dresses in the piece which she bought and had never made up. She knew how to read. Monsieur Mabeau had nicknamed her Mother Plutarque. Monsieur Mabeau had taken a fancy to Marius, because Marius, being young and gentle, warmed his age without startling his timidity. Youth combined with gentleness produces on old people the effect of the sun without wind. When Marius was saturated with military glory, with gunpowder, with marches and countermarches, and with all those prodigious battles in which his father had given and received such tremendous blows of the sword, he went to see Monsieur Mabeau, and Monsieur Mabeau talked to him of his hero from the point of view of flowers. His brother the cure died about 1830, and almost immediately, as when the night is drawing on, the whole horizon grew dark for Monsieur Mabeau. A notary's failure deprived him of the sum of ten thousand francs, which was all that he possessed in his brother's right and his own. The Revolution of July brought a crisis to publishing. In a period of embarrassment, the first thing which does not sell is a flora. The flora of the environs of Cotterets stopped short. Weeks passed by without a single purchaser. Sometimes Monsieur Mabeau started at the sound of the bell. Monsieur, said Mother Plutarque sadly, it is the water carrier. In short, one day, Monsieur Mabeau quitted the Rue Mezières, abdicated the functions of warden, gave up Saint-Sulpice, sold not a part of his books, but of his prints, that to which he was least attached, and installed himself in a little house on the Rue Montparnasse, where, however, he remained but one quarter for two reasons. In the first place, the ground floor and the garden cost three hundred francs, and he dared not spend more than two hundred francs on his rent. In the second, being near Faton's shooting-gallery, 
he could hear the pistol-shots, which was intolerable to him. He carried off his flora, his copper plates, his herbariums, his portfolios, and his books, and established himself near the Salpêtrière, in a sort of thatched cottage of the village of Outstelitz, where, for fifty crowns a year, he got three rooms in a garden, enclosed by a hedge, and containing a well. He took advantage of this removal to sell off nearly all his furniture. On the day of his entrance into his new quarters, he was very gay, and drove the nails on which his engravings and herbariums were to hang, with his own hands, dug in his garden the rest of the day, and at night, perceiving that Mother Plutarch had a melancholy air, and was very thoughtful, he tapped her on the shoulder, and said to her with a smile, "'We have the indigo!' Only two visitors, the bookseller of the Port Saint-Jacques and Marius, were admitted to view the thatched cottage at Austerlitz, a brawling name which was, to tell the truth, extremely disagreeable to him. However, as we have just pointed out, brains which are absorbed in some bit of wisdom, or folly, or, as it often happens, in both at once, are but slowly accessible to the things of actual life. Their own destiny is a far-off thing to them. There results from such concentration a passivity which, if it were the outcome of reasoning, would resemble philosophy. One declines, descends, trickles away, even crumbles away, and yet is hardly conscious of it oneself. It always ends, it is true, in an awakening, but the awakening is tardy. In the meantime, it seems as though we held ourselves neutral in the game which is going on between our happiness and our unhappiness. We are the stake, and we look on at the game with indifference. It is thus that, athwart the cloud which formed about him, when all his hopes were extinguished one after the other, Monsieur Marbot remained rather puerilely, but profoundly serene. His habits of mind had the regular swing of a pendulum. Once mounted on an illusion, he went for a very long time, even after the illusion had disappeared. A clock does not stop short at the precise moment when the key is lost. Monsieur Marbot had his innocent pleasures. These pleasures were inexpensive and unexpected. The merest chance furnished them. One day, Mother Plutarch was reading a romance in one corner of the room. She was reading aloud, finding that she understood better thus. To read aloud is to assure oneself of what one is reading. There are people who read very loud, and who have the appearance of giving themselves their word of honour as to what they are perusing. It was with this sort of energy that Mother Plutarch was reading the romance which she had in hand. Monsieur Marbot heard her without listening to her. In the course of her reading, Mother Plutarch came to this phrase. It was a question of an officer of dragoons and a beauty. The beauty pouted and the dragoon. Here she interrupted herself to wipe her glasses. Buddha and the dragon, struck in Monsieur Marbot in a low voice. Yes, it is true that there was a dragon which, from the depths of its cave, spouted flame through his maw, and set the heavens on fire. Many stars had already been consumed by this monster, which, besides, had the claws of a tiger. Buddha went into its den, and succeeded in converting the dragon. That is a good book that you are reading, Mother Plutarch. There is no more beautiful legend in existence. 
and Monsieur Mabeau fell into a delicious reverie. End of Book 5 Chapter 4